Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, August 1st. I'm wrong. I'm a liar. I'm sorry. Today is Saturday, August 8th. 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. We're going to do something a little different tonight. I didn't think you wanted to hear about Martin Luther again for a while. We are going to um, continue our series, Martin Luther in Life and Death, probably for about 20 more segments. Maybe not. I think that's an important history. It's important for that history to be presented from a Christian identity perspective. So we will offer a couple of segments here and there for at least the next several months. I was going to start a series on the protocols, which I am still going to start soon. I spent the morning reading some of the things that I had collected for that series and decided that I couldn't begin it tonight effectively. So perhaps next week or the week after, we will start that. On July 18th, 1290 A.D., every professing Jew in England was ordered out of the realm forever by King Edward I. So much for forever when it's not the word of God. Between 16 and 17,000 Jews had to flee and none dared return until 400 years later. That's almost accurate. This is the Edict of Expulsion of 1290. A catalog of recorded history surrounding Jewry under the Angevin kings of England leading up to the Edict of Expulsion by King Edward I. This is really a summary of the history which was compiled and presented at the Heretical Press website. It was written by Jeffrey Smith and Arnold Lees. That is where, so far as we know, this was originally published on the Internet. Anyway, the Arnold Weiss material was published in books 50 years ago, or better. Some of this material is found in the Arnold Weiss material that has long been available at Christogenia and other websites, Jewish Ritual Murder, Reese's, Lisa's Jewish Ritual Murder, which we have discussed in the past, and we've had that book posted it, posted it Christiania for quite some time. And the rest of this material we've discussed in the past, talking about English history in general. Recently I came across some of the um, verification for Arnold Lisa's claims. It's all posted right on the internet. I, when I found it, I was surprised to find it, because I, I really didn't expect to. But it, it's right there under our noses, and we're going to discuss some of that tonight. So this program will offer summary documentation, and we will supply links to where much of the information can be obtained freely.
The Jews do everything they can to suppress this information and to discredit and defame men such as Jeffrey Smith and Arnold Lease simply because they had spoken out against Jewish treachery in England at an early time. We can rest assured that Smith and Lease, even though they are both now deceased, will be around a lot longer than the Jews. This psalm, that the information that, that, that Arnold Lease dug up in his Jewish ritual murder, is buried in a lot of um, thick old dusty books. And he should, um, if, if he's the one that located the information, I, I mean, I don't have any indication that he got it from anything but the original sources. And, and these are voluminous um, patent rolls and, and calendars uh, of the close rolls. And the actual close rolls, rolls themselves, they are the rolls of the chancery courts in, in England in the um, 12th, 13th, 14th centuries. And they were actually published and published in Latin and some of them, not all of them, not so, not, not so far that I could find were translated from Latin into English and published by the British government in the very end of the 19th and and early 20th centuries. And a lot of these are now on the Internet Archive and found in other sources, which will be posted at Christogenia. Links will be posted at Christogenia to these indexes when we post this program later this evening. The Settlement of Jews in England by Jeffrey Smith. There is little evidence to suggest that Jews settled in England in any large numbers until after the Norman Conquest. It was in Normandy, at Rouen, that a large Jewish community had existed since the Gallo-Roman era, which would be the later centuries of the Roman Empire. And he cites a book called Gesteregum Anglorum. And he says that William of Malmesbury the medieval English historian, William of Malmesbury, stated that the conqueror brought the Jews of London from Rouen. Thus, it was armed might, not democracy, which led to England being occupied by Jews. However, Jews soon became indebted to the Norman exchequer. An example of Jewish indebtedness is that King Richard I who reigned from 1189 to 1199, instructed Isaac, son of a rabbi, to pay 1,000 marks to Henry de Grey, keeper of the Jews in Normandy. This is referenced in books 
called The History of Essex and the Itinerary of Richard. And the links will be posted with this, with this presentation. The first Jews to settle in England, then, were undoubtedly Jews from Normandy. And in England, they multiplied their number and their coins until their expulsion in 1290. And we will discuss this more later. The Jews of England flourished, traveled many miles around Europe, and profited through their usurious proclivities and mercantile pursuits. They lived lavishly, owned great mansions, and brought up English land when the English failed to meet their loans. For the proof of the, of the wealth of the Jews in England, see the pipe roll of Richard I. Now that pipe roll is one of those chancery documents that we had mentioned earlier. Here, Jeffrey Smith authors a quote. The quote is actually, he, he doesn't really uh, give its entire source. He just quotes it as being from the Domesday Book to Magna Carta, published in 1951 on page 353. That's actually volume of volume. It's the third volume of Oxford's History of England, and it was written by A.I. Poole, and it says that the ostentation which possession of great wealth enabled the Jews to display, speaking about the period of the Angevin kings, and their unsealed contempt for the practices of Christianity made them an object of universal dislike. As usurers, moreover, they had gained a stranglehold on the recently founded monastic houses whose splendid buildings they had financed, which is a disgrace, and on many of the smaller aristocratic families. And Jeffrey Smith goes on to say that during the 12th century, England was visited by Jews from Italy, Spain, and Russia, as well as from French-speaking lands. Jews in medieval England built the Great Synagogue just a short walk from the Tower of London. This was an error for which many Jews paid later, on their short walk to the tower for their execution. The synagogue was used not only for religious ceremony, now this is clear in many later documents, the synagogue was used not only for religious ceremony, but also to invite claims against Christian debtors, effecting a settlement of their debts. So the synagogues were also used as Jewish debt collection courts, right? Following the death of Henry I, who reigned from 1100 to 1135, the situation surrounding Jewry in England changed dramatically to their advantage when Stephen was elected as King of England. Stephen was weak, and most of his reign from 1135 through 1154, was marked by civil war. Stephen's weakness included a fondness for Jews, and they soon founded communities at Norwich, Cambridge, and Oxford, 
After the death of his son in 1153, Stephen acknowledged Matilda's son, Henry II, as his heir to the throne. Now, during the reign of Stephen, there was the case of William of Norwich, the young boy who was a victim of England's earliest recorded case, earliest recorded case of Jewish ritual murder. That happened in 1144 AD. Arnold Lees will mention it for us again later. During Henry II's reign, from 1154 to 1189, Jewish communities could be found at Lincoln, Northampton, Thetford, and Bungay, also in Gloucestershire, Hampshire, and Wiltshire. In 1159, King Henry II levied taxes of 200 marks on the Jews of London, 72 and a half marks on the Jews of Norwich, of, on the Jews of Lincoln, 60 marks, Cambridge and Hampshire, 50 marks, Thetford, 45, Bungay and Northampton, 22 and a half, Oxford, 20, and Gloucestershire and Wiltshire, 2. I guess the, the taxes are commensurate with the amount of money the Jews could make from usury in those places, as we will see that that was the only source of income that they had, for the most part. Gloucester and Wiltshire found most, saw most of the fighting for extension to the throne. And this reference is the same history, the Oxford History of England from the Domesday Book to the Magna Carta, and he cites pages 150 through 153. We have um, a few of the volumes of that work, and we will publish them along with this presentation. During Stephen's reign, when the royal power waned, Jews had preferred to settle on lands within the jurisdiction of the great lords of the day and under their protection. Thus, the easy explanation during Henry II's reign of the presence of Jewish communities at Bungay and Tetford, two towns belonging to the Earl of Norfolk, Hugh Bigod, or by God, B-I-G-O-D, the same word from which we get the word bigot or racist. Something tells me that the Earl of Norfolk wasn't enough of a bigot. Dramatically, in 1192, Isaac of St. Edmunds was killed at Thetford during a rising to awareness of the Jews by the populace. The pipe rolls of Richard I contain many traces of massacres of Jews. And we are able to um, to verify this to some extent, except that the roles that we looked at are only in Latin. They're not in English. They're not translated. By the time of Henry III's reign, Henry III was born in 1207. He reigned from... 1216 all the way through 1272. By the time of Henry III's reign, there were sizable Jewish communities at Bristol, Cambridge, Canterbury, Colchester, Exeter, Gloucester, 
Hereford, Lincoln, London, Northampton, Norwich, Nottingham, Oxford, Stamford, Winchester, Worcester or Worcester, and York. And this is proved by transactions of the Jewish Historical Society where lists appear of taxation of Jews. Now, in the annals of um, the annals of Roger of Hoveden, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself, in the time of Henry II, we see a um, an order by the king dated by Roger of Hoveden for 1177 A.D. Roger of Hoveden was an English chronicler who wrote Chronicles of England up to 1201. He says that this writing of the year 1177, And this year also our Lord the King gave permission to the Jews in his dominions to have a burial ground for each city of England without the walls or outside of the walls of the said cities, wherever they could, for a reasonable sum and in a convenient situation, purchase a place for the burial of their dead. For before this, all Jews who died were carried to London to be buried. So that is um, agreeable to Jeffrey Smith's source telling us that until the time of Henry II, the Jews in England all lived in, uh, in London and, and after that time, they had begun to move into all of these other communities. He goes on to say that one of the richest Jews in England, and we'll speak more about Roger de Hovedin later, one of the richest Jews in England around 1255 was Abraham of Berkhamstead, presented that same year to the Earl by King Henry III, Abraham was a very active Jewish usurer who had debtors in half the counties of England, from Devon to Yorkshire. Orders were issued to the sheriffs that debtors pay up within a month of Easter following, or else their chattels would be seized. After the massacre of Jews in 1264, diverse Jews taking alarm at the troublous state of the realm, went overseas to Normandy. By 1276, there were only two Jews engaged in money lending in the town of Exeter. Their names are Antera, widow of Samuel, the son of Moses, and Isaac, the son of Moses, apparently of the same family. By 1290, a cataclysmic date for Jews, there was but one household, that of a Jewess named Comtesse, in the high street of Exeter. In Ipswich, Jewish households realized no more than seven pounds, six shillings, and eight pence when sold. I guess that's a low price. There's nothing really to compare it to unless we go examine the pipe roll, 
Pipe Roll 22 of Edward One, which our author is citing. Under Edward One, who reigned from 1272 to 1307, we read of the expulsion of the Jews from Winchelsea and Bridge North, in that no one lending a share or portion dwelling temporarily has been accustomed or hindered. Now, he's citing a document called the Fodera and the calendar close rolls from the years 1272 through 1279. He quoted a Latin phrase, and the Latin more closely says that the Jews were expelled from these torn towns in which no Jew at any time has been accustomed to live or to stay. The Fodera, which he is quoting, are the records of the treaties, agreements, letters, and the acts of the public of any kind, and facsimile versions of that are available online, and we will include them with this presentation, but the publication is only in Latin, that there is no um, no English translation of it to my knowledge. We can find many of these um, close roles were published by the British government and they're available online now as we have described. Some have been translated into English. Jeffrey Smith goes on to say that whatever may have been the position in the 12th century, in the 13th, permanent residents outside one of the larger towns mentioned above appears to have been illegal without the king's license. So the law was stricter on the Jews in the 13th century. The statutory provisions of 1239 and 1253 seem to have been no more than an affirmation of what was already the rule, citing the Liber de Antiquis Legibus, or Book of Old Law, published by the Camden Society, and we also obtained a copy of that online. The close rolls for 1251 to 1253 are also cited. And Smith says, in 1237, for example, the sheriff of Northamptonshire was instructed to see that no Jew resided outside the town of Northampton. And for that he cites the close rolls of the years 1234 through 1237. And, and actually the... Um, the source there can be found and it does reference the Jews and Northampton but it's not in English and we've seen it and we will post it this evening however our Latin wasn't good enough to read it all in time for this program Smith goes on to say that unauthorized residence appears, moreover, to have been the reason why the bailiff of Sittingbourne was instructed in 1231 to arrest Isaac the Jew with his chattel, citing the close rolls of 1231 to 1234. And we have found this also. We have seen this paragraph in the rolls that are cited, but only in Latin. 
And he goes on to say, for in 1266, a license was required for a Canterbury Jew to depart and reside in Sittingbourne, citing the calendar plea rolls. How the authorized communities established themselves in the 12th century is uncertain. No charter is known which permits a Jews which permits Jews to reside in the towns where there is later evidence for the existence of synagogues. If at first there was some tacit understanding that in certain royal boroughs they would be protected from the wrath of the peasants, later their right of residence appears to have been a matter of accepted custom. And he, and he cites that same Latin line that's seen several times in the close rolls, and I'm not going to repeat the Latin, but it appears to mean towns in which no Jew at any time used to or was accustomed to live in or to stay. And that line appears several times in the Latin rolls of the Chancery Courts. The important Latin words are habitare and morari, to live or to stay. What was at issue was not visits or temporary stays for the purpose of business, for it is evident that Jews traveled all over the country, as indeed their charter permitted them to do. But the establishment of a permanent community... Jews might indeed own property in towns in which they did not reside, as at Cambridge, whence they had been expelled in 1275. They had also been expelled from Bridge North at the insistence of the townspeople in 1274. But to that town, the people complained shortly afterwards. They still have their repair three or four days in the week, because they own a house in the town. Even though they had been expelled from Bridge North, they were still returning to lend money, although they were not allowed to stay there more than a few days at a time. And here our author, Ron, offers a citation from Pope Clement VIII. It's a little late, there are more um, more contemporary citations from Thomas Aquinas, who was of this same period, or only a, a little after. But this is a quotation from Pope Clement VIII, which says, All the world suffers from the usury of the Jews, their monopolies and deceit. They have brought many unfortunate peoples into a state of poverty, especially farmers, working class people, and the very poor. And we see that this is happening in England within a hundred to two hundred years of their admittance. They already have the wrath of the English peasants. He goes on to conclude... The experience of the Jews at Norwich must have taught every Jew in England how necessary royal protection was, and how easily religious passions could be aroused, even amongst the highest clergy. For it was the Bishop of Norwich, William Turbay, who was most active in prosecuting 
the ritual the charge of ritual murder against the Jews of his city up to the supreme tribunal the court held before the king himself and he goes on to say that although contemporary Jewish authors deny such things as ritual murder some admit that there may have been this is crazy may have been some unpleasant Jews around at the time the um, the lies of the Jews are incredible and with that we're going to summarize Jewish ritual murder in England before 1290 by Arnold Weiss and that's part of the original document and part of the reasons for their expulsion the first known case occurred in 1144, that is, William of Norwich. After that, cases cropped up from time to time until the Jews were expelled from the realm by Edward I. The most famous of these incidents was that of little St. Hugh of Lincoln in 1255. I record these cases in chronological order, and I do not deny the possibility that some of them, in which details are lacking, were trumped up ones, where death may have been due to causes other than ritual murder, and the Jews blamed for it. But the case of St. Hugh, particularly, was judicially decided, and the close and patent rolls of the realm record definitely cases at London, Winchester, and Oxford. There seems no reason to doubt that many cases of ritual murder have been unsuspected or even undiscovered. And he starts with William of Norwich, and he says, A twelve-year-old boy was crucified and his side pierced at the Jewish Passover. His body was found in a sack hidden in a tree. A converted Jew called Theobald of Cambridge confessed that the Jews took blood every year from a Christian child because they thought that only by doing so could they ever obtain their freedom and return to Palestine and that it was their custom to draw lots to decide whence the blood was to be supplied. Theobald said that last year the lot fell to Narbonne, but in this year to Norwich. The boy was locally beatified and has ever since been known as St. William. The sheriff, probably bribed, refused to bring the Jews to trial. In J.C. Cox's Norfolk Churches, Volume 2, page 47, as also in the Victoria County History of Norfolk, 1906, Volume 2, is an illustration of an old painted root screen depicting the ritual murder of St. William. The screen itself is in Loddon Church, Norfolk. Unless the power of Jewish money has had it removed. No one denies this case as a historical event. But the Jews, of course, say it was not a ritual murder. The Jew, Roth, in his The Ritual Murder Libel and the Jew, written in 1935, says, Modern inquirers, after careful examination of the facts, have concluded that the child probably lost consciousness in a consequence of cataleptic fit and was buried prematurely by his relatives. How these modern inquirers arrived at a conclusion like that 
After all these years, Mr. Roth does not say, nor is it a compliment to the church to suggest that its ministers would allow the boy's death to be celebrated as the martyrdom of a saint without having satisfied themselves that the wounds on the body confirmed the crucifixion and piercing of his side. And why the relatives should bury the boy in a sack and then dig it up and hang it in a tree would puzzle even a Jew to explain. And of course, Jewish lies are so blatant and in your face that nobody could imagine that they're lies. That's the psychology of the big lie that Adolf Hitler explained. They are just... Like Joshua Christ said in John chapter 8, born liars. Lease goes on to say, John Fox's Acts and Monuments of the Church records this ritual murder, as did the Ballandists and other historians. The prior, William Turbay, who afterwards became Bishop of Norwich, was the leading light in insisting that the crime was one of Jewish ritual murder. In the Dictionary of National Biography, edited by a Jew, it is made clear that his career, quite apart from this ritual murder case, is that of a man of great strength of character and moral courage. And Elise goes on to the year 1160, and he says that in Gloucester, the body of a child named Harold was found in a river with the usual wounds of crucifixion. Sometimes it is wrongly dated 1168, and he cites his sources. He cites three sources, three historical sources for that. 1181, Bury St. Edmunds. A child called Robert was sacrificed at Passover. The child was buried in a church, and its presence there was supposed to cause miracles. Now, Roger of Hoveden was a 12th century English chronicler, and he was a member of the court of the English king, Henry II. The annals of Roger of Hoveden are a history of England, which span from 732 through 1201 A.D. They were written in Latin. And an English translation by Henry T. Riley was published in two volumes in London in 1853. Now, Roger of Hoveden says nothing that I've seen and I have checked about Jews until the time of Henry II. He says nothing about Jews in England except that in Henry II's time, the king issued the the edict that the Jews could purchase burial grounds outside of the walls of the other cities where they had become permitted to live. So the Jews must have been there for quite some time already, and certainly they were, but Roger Hoveden doesn't say anything about them before that time. Later on, Roger Hubbard once again talking about the Jews in the reign of 
Henry II, where he was a member of the court, said, of Jews established in the kingdom, citing another one of Henry II's edicts, be it also known that all Jews, wheresoever they are in the kingdom, are to be under the tutelage and lawful protection of the king. And no one of them can serve under any rich man without the king's leave. For the Jews and all their property belong to the king. And if any person shall lay hands upon them or their money, the king is to demand restitution thereof, if he so pleases, as of his own. So basically, in, 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 um, in the year 1180, when Henry II issued that command, we see that the Jews had all the advantages that they have today, hiding behind major corporations, the Federal Reserve, and the IRS. Except that now, today, instead of the king owning the Jews, today the Jews own the king. So, things are a little different, but they sure as hell haven't changed for the better. When um when Henry the Two's son, Henry the Second's son, Richard I, called um Richard the Lionhearted, Richard Lionheart, perhaps, he was coronated in eleven eighty nine AD, about nine years after that very edict was issued by Henry II. And Roger Hoveden, who's an eyewitness, writes of um, Richard I's coronation, and he writes of it at great length, so we won't go through the whole thing. But Roger says of the coronation, the coronation dinner, if you will, while the king was seated at table, the chief men of the Jews came to offer presents to him. So right away they were playing their natural role as sycophants. But as they had been forbidden the day before to come to the king's court on the day of the coronation, the common people with scornful eye and insatiable heart rushed upon the Jews and stripped them and then scourging them, cast them forth out of the king's hall. Among these was Benedict, a Jew of York, who, after having been so maltreated and wounded by the Christians, that his life was despaired of, was baptized by William Prior of the Church of St. Mary at York. Any Christian that baptizes a Jew is basically basically a traitor in the church of the innocents and Benedict was named William and thus escaped the peril of death and the hands of the persecutors 
The citizens of London, on hearing of this, attacked the Jews in the city and burned their houses. They didn't like the idea of Jews being converted. But by the kindness of their Christian friends, some few made escape. On the day after the coronation, the king sent his servants and caused those offenders to be arrested who had set fire to the city, not for the sake of the Jews, but on account of the houses and property of the Christians, which they had burnt and plundered, and he ordered some of them to be hanged. Those Christians harboring the Jews deserve, deserve to have their houses burnt and plundered. And he ordered some of them to be hanged. And on the same day, the king ordered the before-named William, who from a Jew had become a Christian, to be presented to him, on which he said to him, What person are you? To which he made answer, I am Benedict of York, one of your Jews. On this, the king turned to the Archbishop of Canterbury and the others who had told him that the said Benedict had become a Christian and said to them, Did you not tell me that he is a Christian? To which they made answer, Yes, my lord. This is a classic tale of the Jew being what he thinks is accommodating to him any time he wants, but this Jew got caught. Whereupon he said to them, What are we to do with him? To which the Archbishop of Canterbury, less circumspectly than he might, in the spirit of his anger, made answer, If he does not choose to be a Christian, let him be a man of the devil. And, and the Archbishop should have known that, being a Jew, he was, of course, a man of the devil. But they had this mistaken idea that you could jump the fence. Whereas he ought to have made answer, we demand that he shall be brought to a Christian trial, as he has become a Christian and now contradicts that fact. So Roger had a better idea than the Archbishop of Canterbury. But inasmuch as there was no person to offer any opposition thereto, the before-named William relapsed into the Jewish errors, and after a short time died at Northampton, on which he was refused both the usual sepulture of the Jews and also that of the Christians, because he had been a Christian and because he had, like a dog, returned to his vomit. The words of... Roger they hoped it. So we see that the Christians, Richard I being coronated, must have thought that the Jews would not have the protections they had under Henry II, and immediately upon his coronation began to lynch them. So there must have been great antipathy built up during the rule of Henry II between the Christians and the Jews. The Jews having the full protection of the king must have um, caused the Christians to store up their wrath. Arnold Murray continues, now we're into the reign of Richard I. 
1192 in Winchester, a boy was crucified. He says that this is mentioned in the Jewish encyclopedia as being a false charge. He says that details are lacking. In 1232, in Winchester, a boy was crucified. It's mentioned, and details are once again lacking. And he says that it's mentioned in Hyamson's History of the Jews in England, and it's also mentioned in the Annals of Winchester, and in the close roll, number 16, from the time of Henry III. So it's verified in the, the records of the Chancery Court. 1235 in Norwich. In this case, Jews stole a child and hid him with a view to crucifying him. Hayden's Dictionary of Dates of date 1847 says of this case, they, the Jews, circumcised and attempt to crucify a child at Norwich. The offenders are condemned in a fine of 20,000 marks. And that, too, is in the close rolls. Close roll 19 for the time of Henry III. In 1244 in London, a child found unburied in a cemetery of St. Benedict with ritual cuts buried with great pomp in St. Paul's. And he gives us his authority for that, a book called Social England, Volume 1, page 407, edited by H.D. Trail. Now, Arnold Murray, uh, I'm sorry, Arnold Lease is writing this, I think maybe 60 or even 70 years ago. I think this was written in the 1930s or 40s, maybe. 80 years ago. Social England, Social England was originally published in London in multiple volumes in the 1890s. And it was subtitled A Record of the Progress of the People. And it was edited by two scholars from Oxford, H.D. Trail and J.S. Mann. Here, either Annalise is confused, which I somehow doubt because he seems to have been very careful, or the original source has been tampered with because the source we have, which was published in New York a few years after the original publication, says that the nameless child was buried in St. Paul's, but doesn't add all of the details which Lise has. However, the editors of our edition of Social England, and we will post it when we post this program, were very friendly to the Jews and their accounts. And as we shall see, they also seem to indicate that there were no Jews in England until Henry II, which is weird, and, and contrary to generally accepted history, and seems not to be the case if we see the law Henry 
two made concerning burial grounds for Jews as it was recorded by Roger of Hovenden for the year 1177. Jews must have been in England before Henry II. Henry II did not become king until 1154, and there were already recorded problems with the Jews at Norwich in 1144. But the editors of Social England also admit that, so they conflict with themselves. And here I'm going to read the entire passage to which Lees refers, because it also mentions some of the other things that he had mentioned here. The history of medieval England. This is from the Social of History of England, Volume 1 from page 406. The history of medieval England cannot be studied even cursorily, cursorily without its being apparent that the church exercised politically and socially as well as in religion a profound influence on national life. They seem to be immediately biased against the church in favor of the Jews, as we shall see. This influence was supreme in its own sphere and unchallenged. During the period of which we have spoken, there were practically no competing forces. There was there were no heretics and no dissenters. The foreign sect and they mean the Jews. The foreign sect whose disciples reached England in Henry II's reign made but one convert, and she was a wretched woman who recanted at the first sign of persecution. Within the church, theological warfare was at rest. Outside, the Jews were the only non-Christian body of whom home-dwelling English folk had any knowledge, so that woman convert must have been a convert of the Jews in this context. So they're saying that the Jews reached England in Henry II's reign, but later on they'll admit that they were in England earlier, so they're maybe um, they sacrificed accuracy for the sake of flowery language perhaps or perhaps whoever edited this paragraph in New York butchered it that, that's what I suspect because it's not quite as Arnold Lease had quoted it within the church theological warfare was at rest outside the Jews were the only non-Christian body of whom home-dwelling English folk had any knowledge. It is thus of great interest to know what the attitude was which the supreme religious society adopted towards the infidels within the area of its rule. The church, and and the the Jews are portrayed as underdogs here, right? Like they're heroes or something. The church was not, as a body, harsh towards the Jews. There are many acts recorded of individual friendship and kindness. Jewish physicians, this is a thousand years ago almost, right? Jewish physicians were friendly and honored by Christians. Monastic societies held amicable relations with Jewish bodies, 
more like the usurers we had read about previously. The chroniclers, all of them monks or ecclesiastics, rarely, if ever, speak approvingly of outrages on Jews. Still, as time went on, and Jews in England grew rich upon the profits of the usury which they alone might exercise, more bitter feelings sprang up. From 1144, the date of the first recorded charge of murder of a Christian boy, the Jews began to suffer from time to time from accusations most often false and judgments generally hasty. The prominent cases of this kind created quite a new cult in England. So, if, if you accuse the Jews of, of um, ritual murder, you, you're a cult member. The boy martyr's shrine became not seldom the most popular in the cathedral. St. William of Norwich in 1144, Harold of Gloucester in 1168, Robert of Edmondsbury in 1181, a nameless boy in London in 1244 buried with great pomp at St. Paul's now that's the boy that Arnold Lee cites this same source and says that a child's body was found unburied in the cemetery of St. Benedict with ritual cuts and was buried with great pomp in St. Paul's I just had to notice notice the difference between what Arnold Lee said and what the source that he's citing said. But this source is a second publication of the original book, which is made in New York several years after the first in London. And St. Hugh of Lincoln in 1255 are the most prominent instances and even these writers who are very friendly to the Jews say it is difficult to refuse all credit to stories so circumstantial and so frequent but on the other hand it may be said that the tales are too many for for them all to be true and most of them may be dismissed as holy fictions and or entirely fictions not wholly in the religious sense. We will see Arnold Lees argue against that position shortly. And even if only some of these stories are true, it should be enough to throw all the Jews into the lake of fire for torturing and ritually sacrificing Christian children. Lease goes on to say, 1255 in Lincoln, a boy called Hugh was kidnapped by the Jews and crucified and tortured in hatred of Jesus Christ. The boy's mother found the body in a well on the premises of a Jew called Joppin or Coppin or Coppinus. This Jew promised by the judge his life, if he confessed, did so. And 91 Jews were arrested. Eventually, 18 were hanged for the crime. Henry III himself personally ordered the judicial investigation of the case five weeks after the discovery of the body and refused to allow mercy to be shown to the Jew Coppinus, who was executed 
Hugh is locally beatified, and his tomb may still be seen in Lincoln Cathedral, but the Jewish money power has evidently been at work. For between 1910 and 1930, a notice was fixed above the shrine as follows. The body of Hugh was given burial in the cathedral and treated as that of a martyr. When the minister when the minster was repaved, the skeleton of a small child was found beneath the present tombstone. There were many incidents in the story which tend to throw doubt upon it, and the existence of similar stories in England and elsewhere points to their origin in the fanatical hatred of the Jews of the Middle Ages and the common superstition now wholly discredited that ritual murder was a factor of Jewish Paschal rites. Attempts were made as early as the 13th century by the church to protect the Jews against the hatred of the populace and against this particular accusation. Well, these attempts by the Jews to disassociate these dead Christian children with Passover rites would only be natural. Evidently, the efforts by the churches to prevent the rage of the populace from throwing all the Jews down the well are evidently because the church was protecting the property of the king. At a visit to Lincoln of the Jewish Historical Society in 1934, the mayor, Mr. G. Deere, said to them that he was done to death by the Jews for ritual purposes cannot be other than a libel based upon the prejudices and ignorance of an unenlightened age. The Chancellor on the same occasion said it was quite obviously one of the very many cases of slander spread about the Jews from time to time. No doubt the child died or fell down the well. And Lee says in response to that, These people, Jews and Gentiles, bring no evidence whatever for their statement. It couldn't have happened, as they say. Why not? Was Henry III weak in character as we know him to have been? Ever charged with being an immoral man? Did the judges not examine the body, which was only four weeks dead? Is Hayden's Dictionary of Dates, the 1847 edition, medieval and superstitious when it said of this case, the Jews crucified a child at Lincoln for which 18 are hanged. There are no ifs and buts here. Or does Coppinus's confession not tally with that of Theobald, quoted above in the first Norwich case. Coppinus said, For the death of this child, nearly all the Jews in England had come together, and every town had sent deputies to assist in the sacrifice. No one questions the historical facts in this case, but Jews and Judaized Gentiles alike unite in denying the fact of ritual murder.
Strack, in his book The Jew and Human Sacrifice, written in defense of the Jews against the blood accusation, omits all mention of this famous case, which is the subject of the Priorus's tale in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, and is referred to in Marlowe's Jew of Malta. Hyamson's History of the Jews in England devotes the whole of chapter 9 to Little St. Hugh of Lincoln, showing the importance of the ritual murder issue in the Jewish mind today. And then he goes on to um, cite probably a dozen close rolls and patent rolls of Henry III, which all refer to the case. Of Hugh, of Lincoln. He goes on to say, 1257, a child sacrificed. He gives a citation, Epitome Historae, from Cluverius, evidently the name of a medieval monk. And he says, details lacking. 1276, London, boy crucified. Authority, the close role of the realm. Number four, under Edward I. 1279, Northampton, a child crucified. Hayden's Dictionary of Dates, dated for 1847, published in 1847, says of this case, they, the Jews, crucify a child at Northampton, for which fifty are drawn at horses' tails and hanged. He quotes two authorities, historical authorities for that. 1290, Oxford, the Patent Roll, 18. 21st June 1290 contains an order for the jail delivery of a Jew, Isaac de Poulet, detained for the murder of a Christian boy at Oxford. Now, this particular patent roll was translated into English, and I have it here in front of me. This is the calendar of the patent rolls presented in the public record office, prepared under the superintendence of the deputy keeper of the records. It was published by the authority of Her Majesty's Principal Secretary of State for the Home Department. It was printed in 1893 by the Public Record Office. It was reprinted by permission of the controller of Her Britannic Majesty's Stationery Office by Krauss Reprint, a division of Krauss Thompson Organization Limited of Nendown Lichtenstein in 1971. Imagine that. This is the... It's from the calendar of the patent rolls for the time of Edward I from A.D. 1281 to 1292. 
and we will read from page 102 of this volume. It's a 714-page volume. It says membrane 21D. I guess that's the particular piece of paper it came from, or parchment that it came from. Commission to J. D. Cobham. This is for date June 21st. As Arnold Lee says, for the year 1290. Commission to J. D. Cobham and R. de Sandwigo to deliver the jail of the Tower of London of Isaac de Poulet, a Jew of London detained there for the death of a Christian boy killed in the King's Jewry of Oxford and of Corradinus Le Ferber and Joan, daughter of Stephen de la March, killed in the city of London. So this Jew, Isaac de Pelay, is held for killing several Christians. The like, to, to the same, to deliver the said, to the said jail of Jacques de Newbury, a Jew, and Isaac de Pelay, a Jew of London, detained for counterfeiting the seals of the abbot and convent of Radinges and sealing with the counterfeits, false writings in the names of the abbot and convent and certain Jews involving large sums and for other felonies in diverse parts of the realm. Now that's only one case. And there are many cases in the, in the, in the roles concerning Jews. This is only one case in this particular role for the murder of a Christian boy, but we see that the Jews are involved not only in, in um, murdering Christians, three Christians in this case, one boy and two other people, older people. Jews are not only murdering Christians, they are counterfeiting and using the, the, the seals that they are using in their counterfeiting to in turn extort large sums of money from this Christian abbot and this convent. So that this is only one example of their felonies where it says, and for other felonies in diverse parts of the realm. This is exemplary of why the Jews were incurring the wrath of Christians in the very same year that they were expelled from England. Lease goes on to say, only one month after this, King Edward issued his decree expelling the Jews from the kingdom. There is, then, every reason to believe that it was the Oxford murder which proved the last straw in toleration. A similar ritual case was one of the main stimulants to the King and Queen of Spain to expel professing Jews from that country in 14. 
92. And that case is actually in Lisa's larger Jewish ritual murder book. The Jews, in attempting to escape responsibility for these deaths by ritual murder, do not hesitate to impugn the probity of two of the kings of England, against whose moral character no one else has dared to cast a slur. Here are some examples. Firstly, the Jew Hyamson, in History of the Jews in England, 1928 edition, wrote, It has been also pointed out that the blood accusation was, as a rule, made at a time at which the royal treasury needed replenishing. When a Jew runs his mouth, he is lying. This foul accusation against men of upright character was repeated in the Jewish Chronicle Supplement, April 1936, page 8. Speaking of the Lincoln case in the reign of Henry III, henceforth, and especially under the zealously Christian Edward I, the crown and its officers became almost a worse peril to the Jews than mobs intent on loot and led on by fanatic priests and nightly spendthrifts who had borrowed Jewish money. When 18th century writers of history began to examine the old records in a new skeptical temper, in other words, when the Jews were emancipated and they could get their paws on the records. Some may be found venturing on such unkind surmises as that the alleged crucifixions of Christian children only seemed to happen when kings were short on money. Lise goes on to respond that to deny the cases of St. William of Norwich and St. Hugh of Lincoln were Jewish ritual murders, is to accuse certain English kings, certain English clergy, and certain English administrators, known to be men of good morals, of murdering and torturing Jews to get their money, when they could have just taken it, right? They could have just taken it without the accusations. They could have just taken their money and sent the Jews back to, back to Holland and Normandy. Men of good morals accused of murdering and torturing Jews to get their money after accusing them of horrible crimes. In the case of St. Hugh, the sentence was judicial. In the case of St. William, the mob took the matter into their own hands because the sheriff would take no action himself. Whom do you believe? The Jews or the English? It is difficult to refuse all credit to stories so circumstantial and so frequent, citing once again Social England, a publication which was actually kind to the Jews in that regard. That's Jewish ritual murder. Up until the expulsion. Now, the last segment of our presentation, The Expulsion of the Jews from England by Jeffrey H. Smith. Upon accession to the throne, Edward I was conducting a crusade against the Saracen. Returning to England in 1274, he found the realm in ruins as a result of his father's folly, his father being Henry III. 
Many debtors, realizing that the Jews of England were in trouble, refused to honor their debts. An audit organized by the government revealed widespread corruption. Many formerly affluent Jewish financiers had to sell their property in order to fulfill their tax obligations. Many also failed to pay the taxes due and were simply banished, as Jews were only tolerated when they could devise means to legally rob the English so as to pay taxes to the crown. And that situation refutes the claims about the English kings needing money. (laughs) He would want the Jews to stay so that he could raise more. The generally (coughs) run-down condition of Jewry cried out for reform, and events abroad indicated one method of bringing it about. In 1274, when Edward returned from the Crusades, the Council of Lyons under Pope Gregory Tent ordered the Christians to condemn the sin of usury and those who conducted it, both native-born and foreign. Pius Edward, being a loyal son of the church, went into immediate action and ordered an investigation into the practices of the Florentine bankers. They had been in England since 1223. There then followed an investigation of the Jews. For nearly 200 years, Jewish bankers had been favored by the crown. It's only 100 years here so far, right? and encouraged to fill the royal coffers. This cannot be denied. But now that Jews were impoverished, their usefulness could be forgotten. And so Henry III's policy of restricting Jewish activities and the church's policy of suppressing usury were combined in an attempt to prevent Jews from practicing their expertise in loaning money at interest. And it's not expertise that makes a Jew loaning money at interest. It's a lack of morals. It has nothing to do with expertise. A foolish attempt was made to turn Jews from usurers and merchants to material producers and common laborers. In other words, they tried to make like Adolf Hitler and make the Jews work. I'm surprised they didn't complain about a holocaust of six million Jews in 1290. How dare the English make them work. A foolish attempt was made to turn Jews from usurers and merchants to material producers and common laborers. This proposal, putting Jews to work, was submitted by Robert Grosstest, later Bishop of Lincoln. He thought it a good idea and he approved it. Then later, Thomas Aquinas urged similar action upon the Duchess of Brabant. If rulers think... They harm their souls by taking money from usurers, he wrote. They should see that the Jews are compelled to labor. Now, Thomas Aquinas also wrote to Margaret of Flanders that the Jews may not licitly keep those things which they have extorted from others through usury. And he said many other similar things to her which he advised her in reference to the Jews. 
Thomas Aquinas may have been the last authentic Catholic saint. Jeffrey Smith goes on to say, The Statutum de Judaismo of 1275 was promulgated in the Common Council of the Realm at Westminster. Both Jews and Christians were forbidden to lend money at interest. Offenders would suffer punishment. Debts outstanding at the time of the statute was was introduced were to be paid by the following Easter. And he quotes that statute where it says, And that each Jew, after he shall be seven years old, shall wear a badge on his outer garment, that is to say, in the form of two tables joined of yellow fayet, of the length of six inches, and of the breadth of three inches. And Thomas Aquinas also informed upon her asking the Duchess Margaret of Flanders that it was highly permissible morally to force the Jews to wear special signs on their clothing so that people could recognize them as Jews. So here we have it in the statute Statutum de Judaismo of 1275 in Britain as well. As regards the ownership of land, the Statutum de Judaismo was more liberal than the legislation of four years earlier, which prohibited it entirely except for personal occupation. No land speculation, which the Jews are want to do with the proceeds of their usury. Following the promulgation of the statute, Jewry held a meeting to consider the long-term impact. They drew up a long petition, begging the king and his council to make modifications. Poor Jews, they claimed, should be allowed to dispose of property to fellow Jews, instead of being forced to tear down buildings for scrap material. Jews could no longer travel about safely and usury was no longer profitable as debtors realized their increasing plight. Their petition to the king and council was a pathetic plea for mercy begging to be allowed to live at peace under Edward as long as they had done since the days of the Norman conquest. During the following year the enactment of the Statutum de Judaismo Statute of the Jews, I should say. Many Jews, unable to pay their taxes, were imprisoned and their families deported overseas. Wealthy Jews, in contrast, turned to the sale of corn and wood. They proved successful at Bristol, Canterbury, Exeter, and Hereford, trading in corn while at Lincoln, Norwich, and Oxford their interest was wool. Dealing in trinkets, jewelry, and common junk continued as of old. Many Jews, forbidden by the statute to profit from usury, took to clipping the coinage, that is, clipping or filing the edges of gold and silver coins, putting it back into circulation, and melting the clippings and filings into bullion.
This offense is condemned in Sefer Hasidin, pages 305 to 306, and is recorded as one of the reasons for the expulsion by Rabbi Meyer of Rothenburg in his Responsa and other sources, other Jewish sources in their accounts of the expulsion, and less skeptically, he says, by Isaac Abrinbel in his own Jewish writing that I won't try to repeat the name of. Jews were punished more severely than Christians if clipped coins were found about their person. Right, Christians are probably the victims of the coin clipping. Even Jewish historians admit that usury was their sole occupation at the time. But once that channel of livelihood had been forbidden, conditions worsened dramatically and fatefully for Jews. Prosecutions increased until at last the king appointed a judicial commission to investigate. On the 17th of November, 1278, Jews all over England were arrested in house-to-house searches in every city that had Jewish quarters. Several hundred were sent to the tower, their property confiscated and escheated to the king. Among the Jews arrested were Benedict Licorcia, or Licoricia, a prominent Jew of Winchester, and the affluent woman financier, Belisette of Lincoln. The house confiscated from Belisette of Lincoln is still standing in Steep Hill. A few Jews, and he cites historical sources for official inventories of the property confiscated at this time. And he says, a few Jews stayed alive by discovering the benefits of Christianity and gave up Judaism. Only three Christians were hanged for clipping the coinage and melting it down into bullion. Thus, the end came about to large-scale offenses against the coin of the realm. The sale and export of bullion by Jews was prohibited. In November 1286, Pope Honorius wrote to the archbishops of Canterbury and York, reaffirming the decision of the Lateran councils. He enlarged on the evils of relations between Christians and Jews and warned of the pernicious consequences of the study of the Jews' Talmud. Around that same time, they had had Talmud burnings in France. The king joined in the dialogue and condemnation by reviving the crimes of ritual murder. Jewish writers used the word allegation with regard to ritual murder with boring regularity. On February 6th, 1283, a justice of the Jews, Hamal Hatain, set up a commission to investigate charges against Jews accused of selling plate made of clippings or silvered tin tin plate to foreign merchants. However, Justice Hautine was cashiered as he was far from genuine also. And that's also in the official documents of the King's Bench under Edward I. 
To coin a modern phrase, there was only one final solution to the Jewish problem. But the banishment of Jews was by no means a new idea in the 13th century. It had been employed all over Europe as far back as the 7th century. In England, various parliaments attempted to interest the king to order the expulsion of all Jews and it seems to have crossed the mind of Henry III. The Jews averted immediate disaster by making a better offer. The final step was taken on July 18, 1290 by an act of the king and his council. It happened to be, long since remembered with awe, the fast of the ninth of Ab on the Hebrew calendar, right? Or the Jewish calendar, I should say. The anniversary of manifold disasters for Jews. From the destruction of Jerusalem onwards, on the same day, writs were issued to the sheriffs of many English counties, informing them that by royal decree all Jews were ordered to leave England before November 1st. Any who remained were declared liable to be executed. The news of the expulsion was greeted by the population with great joy. Parliament promptly agreed to royal demand for a fifteenth of movables and a tenth of the spiritual revenue, probably the value of the synagogues and other real property, in taxation against the Jews. The Jews of London started their long journey to the coast under the custody of the Lord King, bearing the scrolls of the law. I would roll my eyes when I read that. On board ship at Queensborough, at the mouth of the Thames, ship's anchor was cast at ebb tide, and a ship grounded on a sandbank. The ship's master then invited his passengers to stretch their legs. When the tide reversed direction, so did the master, climbing back on board while telling the helpless Jews that they ought to cry unto Moses, by whose conduct their fathers passed through the Red Sea. The Jews all drowned, but the master also met a bad end. He was hanged when the pious Edward learned of his mockery and manslaughter. So Edward hanged a hero. Most of the Jews went from England to France, while others wandered to Spain, Germany, and Flanders. That fateful year for the Jews, 1290, saw the first general expulsion from any country of that era, as chronicled in recorded history. Edward I was the first to order wholesale banishment of the Jews, with such awesome and long-lasting effect. His example was followed 16 years later in France by Philip de Bell and two centuries later by Ferdinand and Isabel of Spain. What Smith failed to mention was that Philip of France changed his mind later on. He offers another quote at the end of this a quote from one Joan Comey, who's who in Jewish history after the period of the Old Testament. Supposedly written in 
well, published in 1974. I'm certain there weren't any Jews in the Old Testament unless they were called Canaanites and Edomites and Kenites and Rephaim, maybe a few other names. None of them were called Judah back then. Joan Comey said, although Edward I's 1290 Edict of Expulsion was not formally revoked as Manasseh ben Israel had hoped, the resumption of open Jewish worship in the time of Cromwell achieved the same practical result. She's discussing a Portuguese rabbi, this so-called Manasseh ben Israel. His other name was Manuel Dias Soyero, and he was a Sephardic Jew who lived and died in Holland. He was also a printer, and he was in the employ of certain Portuguese usurers, and he was a friend of Cromwell's. Wikipedia says this about Manuel Soyero. And with it we can see where several great lies originated. This is an interesting Jew. In 1651 he offered to Christina, Queen of Sweden, to become her Hebrew books agent. So he's ingratiating the Queen of Sweden. In 1652 his book was translated into English and published in London, prefixed with a dedication to the Parliament and the Council of State. So Cromwell lets the Jews back into England and they immediately start kissing everybody's ass. And Wikipedia goes on to say that his account of descendants of the lost tribes being found in the New World deeply impressed public opinion and stirred up many polemics in English literature. So we see the origin of the Mormon lost tribe stories and other similar fables, Jewish fables, began with this Jew in England in the time of Cromwell. We shall probably repeat some of this next Sunday when we present our second segment of our presentation on English traders with Sven Longshanks. Cromwell is the foremost English trader of the modern era. It is absolutely amazing how Wikipedia and many other modern sources of history whitewash the history of the Jews in this period in England. That could be the topic for another program. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. Call recording has been completed.